0: The Hollywell Trust Podcast Testimony Series, sharing experiences of those affected by the Northern Ireland conflict and those people who have taken the decision to take positive steps for the future. Now, here is your host, Eamon Becker.
1: Hello, and welcome once again to the Hollywell Podcast Series. And today's guest is Helen Henderson. Helen is the manager, stroke director of St. Columb's Park House, and she will speak about that work. And about the challenges and the
0: joys of cross community work. This podcast is funded by the Central Good Relations Fund, the Reconciliation Fund of the Department of Foreign Affairs, and co funded by the Derry City and Traban District Council and the Community Relations Council.
2: I grew up at the bottom of a street, it was, I suppose, a fairly mixed area. My next door neighbours were an Indian family. Um, well, the mother was Irish Catholic and the father was Indian. So, there was a, obviously identity issues going on in that household, but great friends with all the daughters from there. But my memories of my childhood memories are generally quite positive memories, and I just love the memories of being out in the street.
1: So, you're talking early 80s, you're at primary school at Ebrington?
2: Yeah.
1: If so you're born in 76, you're maybe at school 81? Yeah. Which, of course, is years year of the hunger strike? Yeah. Would, it, would you have any awareness of that as that a young child?
2: Vaguely with the news, I, I used to watch the news. I didn't like the news, but I used to watch it, and it was never talked about in the house. That was the one thing I noticed is that none of it was ever talked about. And it was the time Jerry Adams, you know, wasn't allowed to speak. So I remember seeing this man on the news, but you know, it was a dogged voice.
1: Yeah.
2: And I remember just really not liking him you know i've met them i've met the man since and you know but I remember you like, at the and time, you like him even less i know <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. wouldn't pick a fight with him running really. but you know i remember at the time for some reason that I, I still picked up enough to know that i didn't like him you know but on the same note i had real issues with ian paisley i wasn't overly keen on him hmm. um this
1: is you as a maybe primary school in the foil
2: about nine or ten
1: yeah
2: you know, i do remember staying at the dinner table one day, the D.M. Paisley was a bigot, and that didn't go down very well at our dinner table because at the time, people thought you know, Paisley was fighting for people's housing rights and doing all this. But I just, I just had this instinct that he was a bigot. I didn't, I didn't like the message that he came out with. I think my mom and dad were very careful. They tried not to pass on any. Sort of bigotry, but obviously in day-to-day life at the time, things for them probably were they were trying to protect us from a lot of stuff going on. But I do remember rebellion. That was probably the start of my rebellion. Was I was about nine or ten, rebe- rebelling against what was supposed to be my culture and what was supposed to be my identity. And you know, I didn't like my culture. I wasn't keen on marching bands. I didn't like the big drums because they scared me. You know, things like that. That you're you know being told that that's your culture that's your identity and I just thought well no it's not so
1: (laughs) that was as early as nine or ten or early fall you were having those kind of as you've dubbed them uh, rebellious thoughts or
2: yeah I just I just didn't didn't suit me I was a very shy quiet child I was really shy I very, very rarely spoke at the dinner table You know, so even the, for me, outburst of Ian Paisley was a bigot. Um, That would be,
1: if you were quiet and shy, that would be a very big thing to say then. Yeah. Almost suddenly to say this.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and so then my father used to try and, you know, get into those debates with me to try and get me to speak up or, you know, because it was so quiet. But then he would just wind you up. You know, that's that's what families do isn't it? So I do remember when I went to Foyle, making friends, I suppose then I, those were the first real Catholic friends I would have had. Apart from my neighbours who were half Indian, half <laughs> half Irish and half loyalist as well because I know they were um, a real mixture. But So I suppose in Foyle then I, I made a friend from Foyle Springs and then she used to come over to our house and I would go over to her house.
1: So you were still in Kilfennan and you'd go over to Foyle yeah. Springs? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Gradually I suppose I spent more time then in areas that I wouldn't have been. Uh, any of my family would have spent time in, you know, like, hanging out around Ballymac, and just round the town, going to Saturday Night Mass, you know, probably. Was your friend, I still haven't told my mother that once, she'll kill where,
1: me, where? <laughs> we'll get this in yeah. tonight. <laughs> where, where did you go to Mass, it
2: uh, was at the wee chapel up in Ballymac, Is there yeah, something? Holy Family, Holy yeah. Family, yeah, so that was a whole new experience for me, you know,
1: and what denomination were you reared in?
2: Presbyterian we were.
1: Presbyterian, so would you go to Kilfenning yeah. church? Yeah,
2: it was Glen Dermot and I, Yeah,
1: and did you notice any difference between
2: the churches? Oh, I I kind of liked the rituals of mass, you know, because in Presbyterian church there's no real rituals. You know, I didn't take communion myself when I reached that age. I wasn't um, religious myself, but I loved the rituals and I loved that you know the shaking of the hands and peace be with you and I thought isn't that you know it felt like there was more of a connection between people yeah. where sometimes the Presbyterian church people are very reserved and you know I know
1: that a near contemporary of yours I know he's a little older and he would tell me about the foil uniform and agro around the town maybe in foil street for buses uh, maybe coming down from the school.
2: I I actually think when I was there, I don't think it was that bad. I think it got worse towards the end, whenever I was leaving and new people coming in. I definitely heard. I actually think it got worse instead of
1: in the school. In the, in, in the, school the
2: school? and school around. I when I was there, I thought it was more of a class issue, you know, because a lot of my friends then went on the. Uh, Fahan Valley or and Some of them did, you know.
1: From Errington. Yeah. People went to Fahan Valley. I
2: and mean, my next door the neighbours, I suppose the Indian family, live next door. They all went to Fahan Valley. Yeah. Um, and then that was all sort of separated. Then that those friendships kind of dissipated. And I think it was more because there was a class judgment when you went to Foyle. Like, who do they think they are? And I think the division was more along that than sectarian.
1: Trying to do the the, the chronology here. So mm-hmm. he born in '76. Um, if you go, th- did you stay at Foy right through the A levels?
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: So A levels would have been '94.
2: Yep, yep.
1: So you would have been doing your A levels at the time uh, of the peace negotiations, the emergent peace process it culminates, you could say it culminates in the 1998 Good Friday Agreement, yeah. were you aware of?
2: I, I was, and actually at the time, I suppose what happened around then too, was the Oma Bon.
1: Which was um, August 98.
2: Was that 98? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I do remember that, and I remember at that time I was away, I'd gone off to university then, and come back, and I felt, I, I suppose when the Good Friday Agreement was signed I was away, I was living in Scotland.
1: You were at university
2: in Scotland? Yeah, yeah. So I think I wasn't so connected then. And I was really glad to get away. That was the only thing I knew when I was going to university. I didn't care where it was as long as it wasn't on this island. I was I wanted to get away.
1: And could you say some more about that you wanted to get away because? I, I suppose I
2: just I wanted to get away because I suppose there's a wee bit of a free spirit on my first start. But also I was really disengaged from the, you know the political arena, and even I suppose the community. The thing with Kilfenand, Kilkenny was a very desperate sort of community. It wasn't like a community centre where people gathered, or and as much as I, we had our street was our community, I suppose. But I just really, I just knew there was a whole world out there, and I just I was ready for. So you something went to Scotland. Went to Scotland, whole world that ended there.
1: And what part of Scotland did you go? To? Edinburgh. Edinburgh, and, and yeah. did you study sciences?
2: Psychology. And psychology. Presence. Yeah. And, and I think also like, I do describe myself as a product of community or cross-community work and that from the age of 11 I had access to all these projects where we got to travel to America, Project Children, the Ulster Project, all right. Um I got all these opportunities for travel and sometimes I think I maybe benefited out of the, the, the conflict here in terms of you know i got access to all these opportunities so but,
1: where did you go with the ulster project i know the ultra project because yes. my daughter went to knoxville tennessee
2: with the ultra project yes louisiana i was there and richmond virginia with project children so um, and my parents had never traveled that far you know like a lot of people here you know but i got to, i was all over the world <laughs>
1: and what do you you think you imbibed from those trips to louisiana for example
2: I think it probably developed a set of itchy feet where when i started traveling then you realised so much you know i loved meeting people in different cultures and um i one of the things i did sort of resent from it or resist about it was that forced cross-community contact that's what it felt like at the time you know when i was as i say he was quite shy at that age about 11 and all the protestant kids being thrown onto a hall with all the catholic kids you know
1: and this is the ulster project or
2: i think it was project children when project I was eleven. Children. just the awkwardness of that, that it was a process that maybe wasn't facilitated you know there's you know so there was i do remember that awkwardness of like and the fact that then you were given that that was your label and that was their label
1: And you're somewhat forced together.
2: Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I do remember rebelling against that as well.
1: (laughs) Oh, the theme of rebellion. (laughs) Yeah. The free spirit, the itchy feet. Yeah. Yeah. And in what way did you express your rebellion?
2: Well, I just I suppose I just remember the awkwardness of it in terms of expressing the rebellion. It's probably more now that I'm expressing that rebellion and that I realise how important it is for people to have a say and how things are done. And I think at that point, as a young person, I didn't feel like I had a say in any of that, you know, and I know I've heard somebody, it was Alan McCulley, I think, commented that, you know, community relations was done to people, whether you liked it or not. You know, you weren't an active agent on it. You didn't have a say. You were, you know, a product of it. And I suppose now in my work with young people, you know, that's one of the things I feel quite strongly about that they should have a say and how these things run and same with communities as well you know and interface areas wherever you know people are involved in that type of work it really i think it's important that their opinion and their ideas are part of it so it's probably only now i am rebelling against that but at the time i do just remember the awkwardness of it and remember just feeling a bit fake
1: but it sounds like these experiences also galvanized you
2: Sometimes I would have summed myself up and saying that I had a bit of an identity crisis because I always felt like my identity wasn't really purely, you know, Protestant or purely, you know, unionist. Identity is something that you have to defend. And, and, and I think... my you have idea, to defend? Yeah, you get the, you know that my feeling of identity in Ireland or Northern Ireland was something that you had to defend instead of it being something that enriched you. So I had a very negative sense of identity. And even as a Protestant, it was, wasn't something I wanted to go around shouting about or um, you know, it wasn't really something that I accepted in myself. And I think, you know, that maybe comes from, I suppose a lot of people weren't shouting about what identity they were maybe at that time anyway. But I think there was also something in me and I'm not actually sure where this comes from. I have, I have this, this, this strange feeling of guilt. You know, the, people say the guilty prod. You know, and I always felt like I was, in terms of the troubles in Northern Ireland, and in term, especially in terms of Bloody Sunday. And I know, I, you know, that was before my time. But even watching it in the news and or watching the documentaries, that for some, the I was to blame for that. That was my fault, and I had a complicity in it. And I, and I, even though it's a, a it's a weird sort of gut feeling that I'm not exactly sure where it comes from, it's still there, you know, rightly or wrongly. Um, I think even now I'm sort of wrangling with that now and what's really interesting doing the work that I'm doing is you know seeing how that pans out maybe in terms of Protestant communities and you know that idea that you have an oppressor and the oppressed you know that sort of and I was the oppressor or was I the oppressed and trying to figure out where was I in this because we do know that there were obvious issues we you know, the, the British you know, state violence, you know, and, and the British state and and how people were treated. But I just really wasn't sure whether that was something that actually motivated me to leave, whether that was something that subconsciously I was picking up on, thinking, I'm not really sure where I fit in here. And even now, I'm not even sure where I fit in, because even some of the issues that I'm passionate about are kind of, when I mean, living in Derry, as a Protestant, I think, I feel like I'm going back into that box as well of being a Protestant, I've sort of been fighting to get out of it for a long time. <laughs> I feel like I'm being pushed back into it. And who, um, who's doing that pushing? Probably maybe the way we think about things and maybe it's government policy or maybe well, I'd love to blame the government, <laughs> but you know, I'm not entirely sure or whether it's working on this. Sometimes I do also think in good, in good relations in this type of work, it's easy to the working boxes because we have to work in boxes we have to tick the boxes and so with some good relations of being you know about mixing between protestant communities and catholic communities i know it's starting to get a bit broader than that because we want to be should be inclusive of everybody wherever they're from but i do think there is a a, a history there of that's the way good relations was, was done
1: that you as the manager of St. Colm's Park House, and we need to say that so that, so we understand that that's your role. Yeah. Uh, not your only role, but but your work role as the manager yes. of St. Colm's Park House. Um, in that role, are you feeling the pressure to tick a box that says, I am the Protestant woman who is the manager of this centre? Is that what you're meaning?
2: Yeah, I would say, yeah, yeah. But what's interesting in my role is managers and concert houses one of the projects we have there is was marching bands yes. but the bands form and for me that was really coming in. you know and I would say that's the the bands form themselves or that I had my own stereotypes my own issues with marching bands
1: What are your stereotypes or what were your stereotypes?
2: But my stereotypes I would have seen marching bands as a sort of territorial thing when I grew up my mother's Meyer Street you know we would have went to see the marches and sat outside my Nana's house and and you know the big the drums that for me were about it was like fighting talk you know it was about a call of war you know the lamb bag that you can reverberate through your body and i didn't like it i wasn't comfortable was it and then i wasn't comfortable then was the yeah it just felt like it like, excludes people or it makes people feel uncomfortable and my friends i would have brought along my friends from Fort springs or you know to some of the marches but then you would have had the odd paramilitary kind of paraphernalia going on and Action men with machine guns, and, and generally I'm quite a peaceful person, so I don't like guns, I don't like war. You know, it seemed to be very much, you know, by men. For men, there were women in the bands, but the gender issue for me was a big one too.
1: The woman in the band you perceived as subordinate to the men? Yeah. So it's a patriarchal... Set up? Would you say that?
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Or did
1: I put words in your mouth? No.
2: (laughs) 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 For the interview. That's right. Cut that out. No, I'd say that would be fair enough. But I suppose I didn't value the bands and the role that they play, and that's the stereotype that was challenged when I started in this role. That you know, chatting to Derek and different people involved in the bands, and even Andy that works along with us. Like you would never meet a more gentle, lovely young fella. Um, is he a, a member of a band, Andy? Yes, he's a member. Which band is he? he is, in the, is it the William King? I think. Um, and he also teaches kids music, you know, the musical instruments of the band, so teaches them the flute and, uh, but lovely fella. And I think that, you know, there's that aggressiveness that I didn't like about bands. I didn't like, didn't like that. But now when you meet, and I have brothers in bands, so you know, brothers that have, one brother's always been in a band most of his life you know so it's not to say it wasn't just the bands but it just wasn't something that appealed to me.
1: So now as you get to know up up close and dare I say personal with Mm. Andy and Derek has the uh, stereotype altered or is there a different relationship or different perspective now?
2: Yeah there is a, a value I suppose I value the role that they play in the community that actually bands you know that sense of belonging i think is really important
0: yeah. and
2: maybe that's something i didn't feel like i had that i didn't really belong to a particular group of people growing up you know and and i think even increasingly that individualism is, is dangerous for our society i think like it's not good for us it's not good for our mental health or and i think with bands they do give they do give that sense of community and maybe for people on the margins like you know bringing them into a group where they get looked after, they get taught in music. There's a social justice angle there too. If you can't afford to learn an instrument, you don't have to pay to learn in a band. You get your instruments free. The community fund raises for yeah. the band. You know, it brings the community together and they do have an influence within within the community. So that's, I do value that. I still have issues with the gender dynamic because I do think women in the bands maybe do have a leadership role or allowed a leadership role, but it's, it's not very visible that I've experienced so far. But, but it's been interesting that those interface between me and the band because I've, I've learned a lot from it. It's made me really think about being a Protestant. <laughs> I've been trying not to think about it for a long time. Um, and that I still don't accept that's just my culture. You know, I, I still don't accept that. But But even just being able to accept that that's part of it. And, and that's okay.
1: What do you see what your culture is
2: I'm not quite sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think
2: I, I like the idea that it's broader. Like, and, and for me, I suppose another key learning aha moment for me was working at Children and Crossfire, and having a you know global connection in terms of learning about learning about you know sub-Saharan Africa and learning about um, I suppose cultures there. And actually seeing a cultural perspective outside of, our, you know, this, I, I think I just felt so suffocated by the two cultures here that whenever the opportunity arose to learn about cultures across the world, it was great, you know, it was, it was, it was enlightening, it was freeing, um, and I loved that. But I think one of the key learnings, part of our work was looking at global poverty, and when you start to Dig, you know, the root causes of global poverty, and you go back to suppose, colonialism and uh, and all the legacy of all. Like I know very little about it, um, but this was my learning, and, and doing the job was learning about the effects on communities and you know countries in Sub-Saharan Africa that have been colonised and the legacy of that today. And it actually was interesting then looking back at Northern Ireland from that perspective
1: from the perspective of Northern Ireland having been part of a colony, the colony of this island, is, yeah. that, is that what you mean?
2: Yeah, and also then the involvement of the British state as well. And that was, a it sort of reframed how you saw Northern Ireland in a way, you know, not, I know it's very complicated and it's not black and white, but it made me sort of understand a wee bit more around Republicanism, you know, and loyalism, like I'd understand a wee bit more about that.
1: And but what would your wee bit more understanding be of Republicanism?
2: I suppose seeing the, the state, there was an, an oppression by the state. You know, I think I, I'm not a historian, so you'll, you'll not be able to put that on. Um, but, but we're the,
1: talking here about your perceptions, your perception is that the state was involved as an oppressor, and that takes me back to what you were saying earlier, that you were asking yourself, am I also part of this oppression? Yeah. And you talked about Protestant guilt, so I'm yeah. there's a connection between what you said earlier and right now.
2: Yeah, and the British state. Like, I definitely felt that because I'm British. You know, I maybe don't define myself as British, and that I never really felt British. I define myself as Northern Irish, or, but that connection with the British state and understanding what had happened, you know, in colonies across the world, you know, where the British state had really created so much poverty and taken so much control away from local communities, you know, uh, and really, you know, squashed their voice and understanding even Hawaii, we took a youth group to Hawaii and uh, and
1: From Children across. No,
2: that was actually a different project, the wider horizons project, but in Hawaii, you know, the Hawaiian language you know, and the Americans illegally overthrew Hawaii not that long ago. to start in the 1900s. But they banned the, the Hawaiian language. And, for that, and that gave me an understanding in terms of Irish, the Irish language here in, in Ireland, and in the hedge schools. and you know Being able to connect all that back, I was like, oh, right. So that's what happens.
1: So that's what colonialism does. It can destroy a language attack a culture that happened in Hawaii. It happened here.
2: Yeah, it can oppress local people. Um, and take away their control and ownership of resources, and, um, and I'm not completely blaming <laughs> blaming the British state, but I could see that you know that connection, and so that helped me understand a wee bit more about the history of this island.
1: Yeah, and maybe even lead into you having a uh, energy to learn Irish.
2: Yeah, which i really just started, and and that was actually through the bands Forum, the connection with the bands Forum and cultureland. Yeah. You know, and trying to promote that idea of shared heritage, that we don't need to cut this up on the two. And you take a bit and I'll take a bit, that actually we can all be part of it. And I, I connect a bit more with that. I'm not comfortable with the cutting up of things to say that belongs to Protestants and that belongs to Catholics. You know, that idea of connecting, making the connections.
1: It's almost like a theme here, Helen. I mean, I'm not a psychologist. But what I'm discerning, I'm not sure if I'm accurate in this, is a theme about finding your voice. The shy 9-year-old, 11-year-old, outdoor pursuits, uh, go on to do a degree in psychology, get out of here, the stifling polarities of Catholic and Protestant. Concern with you finding your voice, people being facilitated to find your voice, not cutting up things, connectedness. Uh, connecting between colonialism here and, and in sub Sahara.
2: Is that is that accurate? Yeah, that's really interesting, yeah. Uh, it is. And even looking at the work you know since I started St Commons Park House. Like I do feel this is such a position of privilege. Like it scares the life out of me doing this job. But it is such a position of privilege and actually going out into communities and listening you know, listening to people and that's the inspiring part of it you know and even just uh you know communities like i just came from crane <clears throat> and from chatting to a few people there and like i do feel privileged to be involved and for people to engage with me and i do think it's really important that their voices are heard in communities and whether it's young people whether it's residents you know we talk about peace building and i would you know love to see a broader definition of peace building where we also are connected on in the inner peace and you know really um, building their own personal resilience to stick our head above the parapet really and I think nature is one of the key ways to do that connecting people with nature and the outdoors. Now, I am not very good at growing things and I always say the only thing I grow is mold. But um, but I do love being outdoors and we have all this green space we're actually we're in an urban park and it's the most perfect location for helping people connect to nature and especially people from interface areas you know Tully Alley, Kurnier, and wherever it is you know, always feel quite strongly about Tully Alley and Kearneirn because I think they're an interface area that's that but more isolated so they've got all you know all the other issues have gone on but they're a wee bit more isolated and as the people in those communities say we don't want to be known as an interface area in 10 years time But because they are isolated I think there are increased issues with mental health and I would just love to For some way for our centre to be opened out to the community and be used by the community and be owned by the community not exactly sure how to do that but space and the heritage of the place as well so that 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 excites me about what it could be you know it's probably a very long-term plan but there's a and there's a walled garden at the back and there's so much potential for people to be using that space and i was interested in that very holistic definition of peace building
1: would maybe include psychological well-being that sometimes
2: may not feature in programs would yeah. that be right yeah yeah i think so and i think you know a lot of i know sometimes that peace building work has to be it can be really tough and you know those conversations there's a lot of difficult conversations in there and for especially for people that have been directly affected and you know by the troubles but i just think there's People, are. We're, I think we're ready to start trying to move on and heal ourselves and heal you know, the wounds that have happened in the past. And I do think it's important, the story we tell ourselves, and that's another um, project that there's no funding or anything for it yet, but it's just an idea that a conversation I had with two other people um, about our tourism, about the stories that we're telling young people about what happened in the city. And for me it was whilst acknowledging there's always a complicity and conflict for me that story is damaging for young people growing up it can be damaging depending on how it's told it's important that we remember what happened it's important that the people that suffered are remembered but i think in terms of our that idea of conflict tourism perpetuates the wounds keeps the wounds open and
1: when you say conflict tourism what do you see in your mind's eye?
2: I see a tour bus going around with people coming from all over the world and they're learning about all the atrocities that happened here and the people that died and, the, and I do think trying to be sensitive about that because I do think it's important that people aren't forgot but I do think there's something about the story that I guess a, a blame, is it a blame? story of blame that blames a certain group of people for it.
1: For example, the Protestant community. Yeah. Or the British state.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Or the Republican community.
2: Yeah, that's right. Uh,
1: So when you think of yourself, you've used the word complicity a number of times, Mm. and the notion of yourself maybe even part of an oppressor community, I guess that sounds to me like you blaming yourself for something. Do you blame yourself for something in this community
2: i think i've let go of that and i think it's supposed to just recognize that that's that that blames damaging i don't think it's good um i still do feel complicity in oppression but on a global scale in terms of what's happened in our world and you know, refugees refugees right. and and uh, people fleeing war fleeing poverty Now do you think there is a you know there is a connection between between that and here. We're all, you know we're interdependent. We're connected. So I don't think we can ever ignore any of those problems. We do have a role to play. So I do definitely feel, you know, connected to that. But not locally, not, not so much. And I think even doing this job, it's really it's made me challenge a lot of that on myself.
1: Challenge beating it's, yourself up. Yeah. As being a part of the oppression.
2: Yeah. And I understand. I, I, I get to hear multiple perspectives on lots of things, and I suppose even the connection with the bands forum has been interesting for me yeah. in that respect. You know, how they feel, you know, their sense of identity and all. Let's just the end
0: there. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's lovely.
2: Yeah.
0: The How Well Trust podcast presents Brexit Focus. As we draw near to the UK's exit from the European Union, Paul Goslin. Brings monthly updates on the negotiating processes, how Brexit is affecting us in the Northwest, whilst attempting to take away some of the fear and uncertainty from the issue on the local community. Hollywell Trust's Brexit Focus podcast, released on the 25th of every month. Catch up on past episodes for free on our SoundCloud page, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher.com. Search Hollywell Podcast.
1: If you've missed any of these podcasts, you can catch up with them on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher.com. Thank you all very much.
0: You can stay up to date with us on our social media pages on Facebook, look for The Hollywell Trust, and on Twitter, it's at Hollywell